We're in a series which finishes next Sunday, Just Jesus. And uh, we've been looking at a whole bunch of peaks in the New Testament uh, that speak about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, why he is so amazing. Because he is, isn't he? Absolutely astonishing. And in many ways, it feels a bit like what we've been doing has been leading to the magnificent vision of Jesus that we're going to find in Revelation chapter 5 today, in a few minutes' time, where we see that he is our worthy champion. Now, Revelation, which Sean was speaking from last week and I'm speaking from today, is a unique New Testament letter. It's unique (coughs) in its genre, although it was well known in the first century when it was written. It's uniquely complex. Has anybody ever tried to read Revelation? Well done. The rest of you, have a go sometime. It's got symbolic numbers, it's got mixed metaphors, interchangeable time frames, loads of dramatic imagery. It's an absolute blast. It was written to seven churches in first century province of Asia. And those people receiving this letter called Revelation, meaning, meaning unveiling from, you know, from Apocalypse, Those people are being persecuted, and no doubt, they're prone to fear. They would even have been wondering, I wonder if I'm going to lose my life if I hold on to standing for Jesus. And this letter was meant to be a powerful set of messages, a powerful set of visions, to basically say this, Jesus is the Lord of global history, and he is the Lord of your destiny too. So for those of you who've tried to read Revelation and thought, what the heck is that all about? For those of you who've never tried to read it because you've heard that it's a bit crazy, here is the essential message of Revelation. Jesus has won. That is the message. And this message is for us too. Whatever our situations. Because let's be honest. Let's face it, we all have our fears We all have our fears, and we know that my fear might be completely, you might wonder, why are you worried about that? And I might think, what about your fear? That's a bit weird. Why are you worried about that? But to us, that fear can be very, very destabilizing and even inducing panic. And we, we know that fears are sort of out of sync with rationality as well, don't we? We kind of know that. And yet they can still get a huge grip on us, as they would have done to the readers of these letters. I remember uh, hearing from one pastor of how someone in his church um, was a firewoman. And she had, on this particular day, she'd been to rescue a 17-stone man from a burning building. And then later that day, she had to call her dad because there was a mouse in her flat and she was afraid. It's like, it's hard to work out where fears come and go. We know they're a bit irrational. What about your fears? Don't tell me you haven't got any. What about your fears? I want to give you 30 seconds just to close your eyes maybe and help you concentrate and say, Lord, if you are my worthy champion, I pray that you will help me begin to deal with fear today. And just name it before him. It's this. It's financial. It's death. It's whatever it might be for you. Name it. Don't be afraid to name it. 
Now, I wonder what you would give to these readers, these seven churches who are being persecuted in order to address their fears. Maybe, you'd, maybe you want to give them some sympathy, maybe some solutions, some tips on how to cope with it. Maybe, maybe you'd be from that branch of Christianity that would want to promise them, don't worry, God will deliver you, which wasn't the promise that was given in this life, at least. What God gives them is a clearer sight of the magnificence of Jesus, which is exactly what we need too, to be awestruck and comforting, comforted by seeing the worthy champion who is Lord of global history and of our personal destinies. Now we're going to read a bit of chapter 5. In chapter 1, John has this extraordinary vision of Jesus that leaves him on the floor absolutely in awe. Chapters 2 and 3, you have short letters to the seven churches that the whole book is addressed to. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, John, the guy to whom the guy who's receiving this vision and who writes this book, is told this: Come up here. He's told in this vision, and I will show you, God says to him, what must take place. And he's being allowed into the throne room of God. Imagine that. He's being allowed into the headquarters to see the heavenly king and begin to see how this heavenly king is going to defeat his enemies. It's like he's being taken into the war room at headquarters and being shown the plans of how this war is going to be conducted. Everybody's heard of D-Day, 1944, June the 6th, I think it was, D-Day happened. While there was a planning, obviously went on in preparation for that. And the planning happened at Southwick House. And on the wall at Southwick House was this huge wooden map made by a toy maker. And they'd commissioned him to make a map of the whole of Western Europe. Imagine how, how big it must have been so that he didn't know what, the, what was going on. And then he was asked, when he delivered it, he was asked to cut off just the bottom bit of southern England and the channel. And on it, they started to put loads of markers, outlining in secret place the plans for D-Day. There are red, you can't see it in the black and white, but there are red lines, black lines, white lines. There are different colored boats. There are letters, numbers. The red circle here marks the assembly point where all the boats were going to arrive. And then arrows show where they would go. There's a large key in the bottom right that explains all the symbols. Well, it's a bit like John has been invited in. Chapter 4, verse 1, he's been invited into heaven's war room to see the plans and hear from God how he's going to defeat his enemies. With the use of imagery, concepts taken from the Old Testament, he gets to see it. This glorious sovereign worshipped by all of creation and the plans that he hears. And then we arrive at chapter 5, verse 1. And we read this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. You're loving the imagery. It's absolutely fascinating and astonishing. And then they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow. What John sees at the start of this chapter is an unusual scroll in God's right hand. It's unusual in many ways. It's a scroll that contains God's plan for history and salvation. One writer says it's a summation of all God's purposes for redemption and judgment. It has writing on both sides, which is unusual for a scroll. It's written on both sides because God has so many plans. It doesn't fit on one side of a scroll. But it is secured shut with seven wax seals. In other words, it is perfectly sealed. The number seven in Revelation stands for perfection. It is completely and utterly sealed shut. So a mighty angel calls out in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Is there anyone in heaven or earth or under the earth who can be found to enact God's purposes of redemption and judgment, to which the tragic conclusion, verse 3, is no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one angelic or human, living or dead, could open the scroll or even look inside it. No wonder... John weeps. Another translation says, I began to weep loudly because if no one can be found who is suitable or worthy to undo, to cut the seals and open the scroll, then God's purposes of redemption and judgment of his blessings for us are going to go unfulfilled, unopened. Without a saviour to break the seals on the scroll, 
there is only weeping. But verse 5 brings great relief because we're told that Jesus Christ has triumphed. John, stop weeping. I don't blame you for weeping. That is a serious problem. No weeping anymore. Jesus Christ has triumphed. And there's two main things we're told about him in this passage that we're going to look at. Firstly, we're told that this worthy champion is a lion. He is, verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. What on, on, what on earth does that mean? Well, let's take the root of David first. He's the root of David. Well, David was Israel's great king. David was the one to whom the promise was given that one of your descendants will always sit on the throne. And this worthy champion is the root of David. He is before David. He precedes David. David came out of him. In other words, this worthy champion is eternal. But he doesn't only precede David. We're told elsewhere that he is both the root and the shoot of David. So he precedes David. He's eternal. David comes, if you like, out of this worthy champion. But then out of David, you see, the kings were cut down in God's judgment. A stump was left. You've seen trees, haven't you? Well, you know, if the tree's dead, what are you going to do? Well, at some point, there's no point feeding it anymore. You cut it. And it looks like Israel's fortunes are dead. The kingdom is finished. But Isaiah 11 prophesies that a shoot will come up out of David. This stump that's been cut to pieces and just left, a shoot is going to come up. You seen those trees where that happens? You see sometimes a stump left and then you get shoots out of it. They, this worthy champion not only precedes David, but is the one from the line of David who will reign on his throne forever and ever. That's what's going on here. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. I need to read you a little bit from Genesis 49. I haven't got time to give you all the background, but Jacob, at the end of his life, is prophesying and blessing his sons. And he gets to Judah. He says this to him, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. In other words, even those who are part of your family will bow down and enemies will be suppressed by you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares, who dares to rouse him? The scepter, symbol of ruling, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. It was always understood from then by Israel that out of Judah... The tribe of Judah would come one who would be the ruler, who even the fellow Israelites would bow down to, and also whose enemies would be crushed by him. He would come from Judah. This title, Lion, signifies his great strength. And what we know about Jesus, of course, is that he was from the tribe of Judah, yes? 
That's one of the very, very important facts about him. If you read in Matthew chapter 1, his lineage, you find that Judah is in there. We know that he was born in Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah. And this title, Lion, with all those promises behind him, signifies his great strength, his power, his kingly rule, and that he has triumphed. Triumphed comes from the Greek word Nike from which people have now devised the product Nike. That's why Nike chose that. It means victory, it means strength, it means speed. She was the Greek goddess of victory. Here's an image of her on some ancient building somewhere in the world that I don't know. But she was this goddess symbolizing victory. That's what Jesus has done. He has triumphed over our enemies. He is the powerful, lion-like king who is victorious, having fought hard to win over his enemies. I think it could be said that that idea of a triumphant, majestic, frightening, terrifying saviour is often missing from Christian minds where Jesus has often been tamed and domesticated and toned down, stripped of controversy and terror. I remember listening to a sermon when I was age 18. I was away with a few friends, and I don't know how we ended up listening to this sermon, but it was late in the evening. We listened to this sermon on the fear of God. When did you last hear something on the fear of God? in Western modern Christianity. It was really impacting. It helped me to realize he is so holy. I am so lost. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, most of you will know of. C.S. Lewis's most famous Narnia story. And the, the children, Peter, Susan, Lucy and Edmund, have gone into Narnia through a wardrobe in their uncle's house. And they're invited to the house of the beavers who are going to take them to see the king, Aslan, this great lion who reigns in that land. Is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think it's really, really important, crucial in fact, that we hold in balance the gentleness of Jesus' compassion and friendship along with the awesome majesty of his power and holiness. He is at the same time our brother and our king. If 
you go back to Revelation chapter 1 and this extraordinary vision of Jesus that John had, bear in mind, John knew Jesus really well. He spent three years with him and then following him for 60 years. And then he has this vision. There's always more to see, you see. He has this vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And his response, do you remember his response? Is to fall down as if dead. What he doesn't say is, hello, mate. Now, please be careful. I'm asking for balance, not, not inappropriate terror in the presence of Jesus. He is lovely. He is for us. He is magnificent. He has grace that never ends. He is merciful to you again today. He has good things planned for you. There is nothing unlovely about Jesus. But he is awfully terrible in his majesty and his holiness, such that John, who knows him well, falls down as if dead at the sight of him. The tone of chapters four and five are holy, worthy, wow. He's a lion, a triumphant lion for us. And then we're told that he's a lamb. You see, the lion is victorious, but then the question is this. How, how was the lion victorious? By what mighty act did he triumph? How did he display, if he's that magnificent, how did he display his infinite worth and worthiness in triumphing? Well, surely if he's pictured as a lion, it'll be by just roaring and stamping on all his enemies and everything around him. Today is Palm Sunday. We don't tend to note many days in the Christian calendar, but it's Palm Sunday today. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed <coughs> shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? There's anticipation on that day that he's coming. Maybe even the lion, certainly the son of David, is coming to roar and ruin the Romans and deliver Israel to be a sovereign nation again. How is this lion going to triumph? Well, verse 6 brings us to what one commentator calls one of the most beautiful mixed metaphors in all the Bible. The lion is a lamb. Now, John isn't seeing a new vision. He certainly isn't seeing a different person. The one he sees is both lion and lamb. And this lamb is standing. Though it appears to have been slain, maybe he's seeing blood marks on it. What is going on? The answer is verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain 
And with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. How does the lion roar? In weakness on a cross. He triumphs in utter weakness. He's victorious through lowliness. He defeats his enemies on the cross. They think they've defeated him. But God's redemptive purposes, the, un, the cutting of the seals, is being enacted in weakness on the cross. Here is the great counterintuitive mystery of the gospel. The power of God, the wisdom of God, the majesty of God are fully expressed in Jesus being the lion-like lamb who is the lamb-like lion. His beauty is found in large part, don't you find, in not being one-dimensional. It's so hard to nail him down, isn't it? Is Jesus like this? Oh, he's like this. Oh, but he's like that. And then he's like the other. It's a little bit like when, um, when we, in 1979, my family moved from Scotland back to England. And um, it was then that we got a colour TV. And suddenly, wow, <laughs> snooker looks different. Snooker's suddenly exciting. <laughs> Jesus is not black and white. He is not two-dimensional. His beauty, in large part, is that you can't nail him down to one or two things. He is lion. He is lamb. John Piper says, his beauty or excellence consists in the right proportion of diverse qualities. Glory mingled with humility. Transcendence accompanied by condescensions. Justice tempered by mercy. Majesty in weakness. Don't you love him for all that? He is not lion or lamb, not sometimes lion, sometimes lamb, but always lion and lamb. And to emphasize this mighty lion-like nature of this self-sacrificing lamb, note these three things quickly in verse 6. This lamb, we've gone from lion to now lamb. The lamb, though it has been slain, is now standing victorious through his death, but also through his resurrection. The lamb is in the center of the throne. I thought God was in the center of the throne in chapter four. Well, this lamb, this lion, is none other than fully God himself. And the lamb, even in meekness and sacrifice, has seven horns indicating perfect power. He is omnipotent and seven eyes. He has perfect sight, perfect knowledge. He is omniscient. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. This is the most extraordinarily powerful and triumphant lamb you could possibly imagine. He is not less than lion as a lamb. He is not less than lamb as lion. And I want you to finally note the response, because we're going to respond in a minute. I want you to note the response of all who see this in this remarkable vision in Revelation chapter 5. 
Verse nine starts like this. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard endless angels encircling the throne, crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Seven things, again, perfection of praise to this lamb. And then I heard every creature. And in a minute, that's gonna include you because together we're gonna praise this great uh, lamb. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, this is what God gives to those seven churches to calm their fears. Not a quick solution, not a trite promise, not a bit of sympathy just, but a magnificent sight of Jesus. A little bit later, we're going to come and bring our fears to him with a sight of Jesus. But let's praise and give glory and honor because he is a worthy champion, our magnificent lion and lamb. Let's stand up, please.